0: Hi, folks, this is the non-patron version of the Sunday show that we just recorded live with an audience of our members. Um, the panelists this week were brilliant. It was Emma D'Souza, who listeners will be aware is one of the best contributors we have on the Tortoise Shack, Shack, uh, PVP, Clendalkin activist, and um, Dara Adelaide, uh, Vicky Conway, Doctor Vicky Conway, who is the host of the Police Podcast on the Tortoise Shack, and also DCU Law. So, and then the Irish Examiner reporter, Eva Grace Moore. As usual, it was great to be joined by them to talk about the events of the week. If you want to come along to these, if you want to attend them in person online, it's uh, patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. Uh, we open up the comments. We have a Q and A. We, we have a bit of fun with it. So if you want to do that, please, it's it's the price of a fancy cup of coffee once a month. And that gets you access to all of them, including about 800 exclusive other parts of, um, whether it's writing or other podcasts that we've done, they're all there in one consolidated feed. Uh, I just want to also say, uh, if you are a member, please go check out my podcast yesterday with a uh, PUP um, member, loyalist, feminist, unionist, Rosie Bell. I think she was really good and well worth a listen. We're going to be busy over the next few days. If you can, um, please spread the word, tell people about it. We've no ads, no sponsors. Uh, we stay independent, values-based. Uh, and the reason we do that is because we don't want to be pulling punches just because we've some bloody bank sponsoring us every every 15 minutes and I don't want to be doing these live reads. Thanks for your support. Enjoy the pod. Take care. good afternoon and welcome to the tortoise shack Sunday special um, this is our breakdown of the week or maybe maybe some of my rants of the week I suppose but um, it, it, this I'm going to I'm gonna go straight into it and actually say yeah uh, yeah no Martin is still not here and I don't think I don't anticipate to be back anytime soon but but he's feeling a little bit better so thanks for everybody all the well wishes it really it's it's nice to it's nice to see that not everybody hates peanut head it's uh, it's a decent it's a decent thing um, I think we, you're
1: on your own on that
0: one toby <laughs> i i only i'm only mean to him because i don't like him uh, it, honestly like i mean there's a huge there's a, there's a huge misconception out there that we're great friends we're not <laughs> but um no we have a brilliant panel lined up today uh we, i am joined by my as you as you've already heard uh the host of police podcast uh dr vicky conway uh from dcu law which uh thanks for doing this vicky i really appreciate it um Back to the back to the uh, Sunday show for the first time in a while is uh, Dara Adelaide PVP's rep in Clondalkin and and uh, and now DCU debate champ and and you know I have to, you know he he said I had to Ooh. say that um, <laughs> and uh, regular Sunday regular and one of one of my one of my good friends and one of the best contributors we have on the show Emma De Souza Emma it's good to see you again and of course uh, we are joined by the examiner the Irish Examiner reporter Aoife Grace Moore Aoife, how are you and thanks for talking to us today.
2: I'm grand, Tony. I'm glad to be back. I didn't know if you would have little old me after your TV celebrity <laughs> uh, debut.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, um, for, I like, know
1: I messaged him during the week because I've got COVID. So we'll see how we, I go today. And I, he, he like actually messaged me saying, how are you feeling? And I was like, You're still talking to the little he is, people. He's <laughs> just one
2: of the little people. Like us.
0: <laughs> no, I've got uh, no, I've got notions now. I have notions. Um, I, I But no, um, If I'm going to come to you first, if you don't mind. And I, we want to talk a little bit about the politics as usual. And yet, the, you wrote a piece, I know, this week saying how restrictions have just magically gone away. And it, it seems to me that, that, the, that we've just moved on so quickly and forgotten about it, that, that everything is nephid, nephid is disbanded. And we should we just move on in a week where I think it was 102 people died from COVID as well. It, mm. it, it does seem a bit scary. Um, what's your take on, on politics as usual at the moment?
2: Someone said to me or I read somewhere about a year ago when we were like knee deep in lockdown that we will learn nothing from this that it'll be it would amaze you how quickly that our psycho- psychology works that we will just go back to the way we were and it'll be like it never happened and that's kind of the way I feel about it at the moment. when I read the Neffitt letter from Dr Tony Hohan saying you know we're moving into a transition phase I still don't really believe it personally like I'm not saying I'm any expert or anything but because we've had so many false starts so many letdowns so many lockdowns I'm having a t- hard time thinking that this is going to be it. Um, politics has moved on so quickly. You know, we're back arguing now the cost of living. Everyone decided a couple of weeks ago that that's what we were going to start talking about was the cost of living. I would argue that we knew a lot of people were living in poverty before the cost of living thing became an issue. But we've decided that this is the the issue of the day, backed by housing. Now we have this scandal in Department of Health and the HSE, the recorded meeting um so yeah and like leaders questions straight back and the housing straight back and they cost 11 straight back under the punch and duty show with Sinn Fein and Fianna fall about housing and objecting to housing so yeah it's mad how quickly people just transition back and we put everything on the back burner and rightly so i think in a pandemic we put most things on the back burner because we had to they. they protect the health service and protect life and everything else but I am a bit surprised at how quickly we have reverted, and even now when people say, "Oh, I don't feel well," um, but it's okay. I got a test. Like I don't even think like it's me personally. I don't even think I'm not even considering it. So I definitely like, include myself in this sort of people who have transitioned out of it very quickly. Like, it seems strange to me because
1: it's one thing for politics to move on and we kind of cynically expect no better in a way. But I think I was almost surprised that Neffet were recommending like getting rid of masks and all this kind of thing. We still have 10,000 cases or thereabouts a day, as Tony said, over 100 deaths. And I think that really surprised me this week that Neffet were on that track.
2: And what I would say, and I never even thought about this at the time, but a cabinet minister said to me that he was delighted that Neffet themselves said that they were going to wind down because the government doesn't want to be left in a position where they would have to decide they wind it down because it would have become a political issue, which it would have been because if Neffet had to wind down, move them all back, and then something happens, the government would have borne the, br- borne the brunt of it. And he said to me that there was like a, a relief around Cabinet that Neffet themselves had decided, right, that this is us. But again, we have to follow public health advice. They are the experts. The thing that surprised me the most is that they said that the the masks in schools could be removed. And I know no one wants children to wear masks, but the outbreaks in schools are still incredibly high. And it seems a very simple measure to counteract that. But Nethod have decided that they can go as well.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting actually, because DCU have we got a notice this week that they're going to retain masks until the end of semester, mm-hmm. um, which is big. Breath of relief for me, but um, yeah, real difficulties for schools and you know what we're hearing about I would, I'd, I'd
0: substitutes I'd, I'd, I'd and everything. I've got to plug um, Rob O'Hanron, who continues to do great coverage of it um, on Virgin Media and on social media. And we've had Rob on before, but with the numbers you're hearing in schools. And again, it's not anecdotal. I have, I have nieces and nephews yeah. now who are getting it um, and, and are at home sick. I mean... You've, there's 12 13 year olds i know who have the worst flu of their life and that just seems something that you know it, it's a, it it has to it is a mom, it is a great concern to to their parents as well you know yeah
1: Eva, can I, I ask you because there was a really big um or like there was a significant decision this week that may have passed by a lot of people about stardust um mm-hmm. can you explain to us what that ruling was about this week
2: yeah so the man who owned the stardust um Eamon butterly he owned the Stardust Nightclub, he's a well-known businessman in North Dublin. He and his legal team tried to argue that the Stardust family and victims legal teams um shouldn't and couldn't, and the coroner shouldn't be able to find uh uh what's the word? Didn't wasn't be able to come to a conclusion of unlawful killing. He argued that that wasn't fair and it would have abused the process of the inquest and that the coroner shouldn't be allowed to come to that conclusion. And Dr. Uh, uh, Colin basically said, no, (laughs) you know, she said that that you can't have a predicted outcome at the start of an inquest. That is the whole point of the inquest is to investigate what happened. And she's basically free to do it. It was the biggest relief for the families because they have been fighting this for so long and they just want it done right. And that would have been a pre, like a preconceived outcome. You know, if they said at the outset, well, you can look into how all these people died, but you can't find unlawful killing. But what you, like to me, it's such an alien concept. And I know Mr. Brodley is well and his rights to do this. You know, he's going to fight this way, everything he can, but it was a huge relief for the families. I thought it was a brass neck, uh, of him but i suppose he's allowed to do whatever uh he wants
1: but i don't know i mean like part of me kind of feels like nobody on trial for murder would you know go to a court and say oh you have to remove murder you can only have homicide like manslaughter Mm -hmm. as the potential outcome like we don't we wouldn't permit that kind of application in that process you know and it just it's so to have done that to the families like and you know think we'll, we'll talk about a lot more I think across the podcast over the next coming weeks but like that idea of unlawful killing is a really core element function of the inquest and for him to try and just remove it I mean do you think it does it indicate he's scared that that might actually be the outcome?
2: I don't know Eamon Butterly from um, from what I have heard you know you need to remember that Eamon Butterly, uh sued Dublin Corporation after the Stardust and got a huge payout. He's the only person who got a payout after the Stardust. The only person who has ever um, been prosecuted over the Stardust was John Keegan because he punched Eamon Butterly in the face outside the court one day. So Eamon Butterly and his sons now, I believe, run the businesses as well. The actual new retail park up there in Artane is called the Butterly Business Park. Um, I think they have... N- I think they felt for a long time that this was over. I think Mm -hmm. they felt that the families weren't getting anywhere. It had gone on 40 years. I think they thought they were out the gap. It appears now the chickens are coming home to rest in terms of the families are getting their inquest. They're getting a chance at truth. And I think he is panicking um, because you you would panic too
0: and and yeah. I think you were right. we were coming back to it I think as as quickly as tomorrow in a, in a more in a more detail and you're going to look at it as a from a police perspective as well in the coming weeks so um we will continue covering it. So, uh, but uh, I've just seen that the, the breaking news is that, uh, that the Queen of England has been has has been uh, has has COVID, folks. So, there's there's something that I wasn't expecting to be reading out on, on the podcast today. And I don't mean to just make light of it. I hope I don't want I hope everybody uh, recovers from from COVID, absolutely. But uh, there you go. T- thanks, for except for
1: Martin, on. if you get sense
0: Yeah. Yeah. Except for, well, not even him. Um. <laughs> I I I I I'm conscious of a couple things happened this week, and maybe Emma. Uh, I'd like actually I'd like to go around the houses on this. That Emma, but I want to come to you first. That you've done a lot of um, work with the the cross border um, women's initiative. You were you were you were very busy this week in terms of um, some of the speeches you attended, some of the speeches you gave. Uh, And the controversy around the National Women's Council uh, rumbled on and it was made into something a bit more. Did you did you watch that and think to yourself that this is this is not helpful, first of all, for the work you're trying to do and uh, the the the, the all Ireland aspect to it? And did you also think to yourself, oh, my God, uh, please, please stop, because I know I did.
3: Yeah, I mean, I suppose, look, you know, I if anyone has been across my Twitter page over the last 48 hours, you will see I'm desperately annoyed at the coverage that this week's peace-building conference actually received. You know, this was a significant event. It brought together the All-Ident Women's Forum for the first time, uh, it was our eighth meeting. We brought together 100 women from across the island of Ireland, from Cork to Donegal, to Derry, to Dublin. It descended upon Enniskillen, and we discussed the unfinished work of the peace process, women's voices in peace-building, the role of education and reconciliation, and I mean, this was a really significant event. It brought women across from loads of um, loads of communities. You know, like we had an entire busload of loyalist women that traveled in a minibus for three hours to get to this event. But the coverage of it, I mean, there really was none. You know, we had a press association piece. That was in the Irish Times um, and the BBC and I did a piece, but they focused in on um, integrated education and ended up spinning it into quite a negative piece where they brought in the DUP to comment on it. And it just astounded me, you know, like we had the um, the director of Georgetown's Women, Peace and Security give a keynote. We had the president give his big keynote, you know, and it's just another example of how, you know, women working across communities across this island for peace it's just not a news story on this island. And it was really frustrating for me that all the work that these women have been doing was just completely underreported. I mean, we had no reporting from Belfast Telegraph. We didn't have reporting from the Irish News, the Irish Independent, the Irish Examiner, the Journal, nothing.
0: If you, you wanted to come in on that.
2: Yeah, I'm not going to like defend the honour of the Irish Examiner here. Um, <laughs> no, I just wanted to say, and this is obviously a different thing from what Emma is talking about a little related, but I have to go, so that's why I wanted to say it. The issue with the National Women's Council and this uh, protest that they're having that government TDs haven't been invited to. I have never seen such a non-issue blown out of all proportion. I find it incredibly weird and sinister that the government TDs and senators and uh, local Fine councilors who appear to have a lot to say about women's issues now think that because this uh, group is government-funded, that somehow they should get some kind of say in who is invited to these events to speak. The As far as I'm aware, and Emma can correct me on this, this is a protest about lacking women's services. I can totally understand, and you have to obviously take the National Women's Council's uh, word for this because they organise it. If this is a protest, the notion that you would ask government TDs and Senators to speak is a bit alien to me because surely the protest is about lack of government services for women. And the other thing, and you know, it's become this boogeyman and it's personal to me because I also, the type of abuse I receive is linked to this but this, the Sinn Féin boogeyman there was a headline in the Irish Times and I'm not going after the journalists for this because journalists do not write headlines but there was um, a headline about, you know, concerns or tensions over Sinn Féin's influence on the National Women's Council. Sinn Féin have become a boogeyman for anything and everything that people find wrong. We are not a year off one of the most uh, popular Sunday columnists, and it was popular Sunday newspaper saying that Sinn Féin ran RTE. So, the Sinn Féin has become an absolute boogeyman for anything and everything. The notion that you go after female activists for their former careers. And at one point in one of the pieces, it says uh, it names a certain woman activist. And it says she was Mary Lou McDonald's parliamentary assistant or secretary assistant. And she <laughs> and then ran the campaign for Gary Gannon and the Social Democrats who runs against Mary Lou in the same constituency. So this person is apparently part of Big Sean Fein, but also organizes campaigns for her friends to run against Mary Lou MacDonald in the same constituency. It doesn't even make sense. I just find it very sinister. These are. It is hard enough to be woman activists and woman campaigners. And the whole thing has been blown all out of all proportion. And I really feel like, The government TDs and Senators do have something to say, and I can understand why they're annoyed, but this isn't about you, and no one has covered themselves in glory at all this week. But, you know, there have been men who are very upset because they've tried to support women, as one great tweet said this week. You know, I've always supported the woman, and I'm very disappointed. Sorry to the men, but this isn't about you. (laughs) I have to
1: say, I actually... Like, I 100% agree. This is how it's blown out of proportion and how it's being twisted against Sinn Fein. But like even that point about I understand why they're disappointed. I don't like they have no entitlement to be there. And that like it just makes me think the circles they in where they very genuinely are like still annoyed about this. That kind of like it really worries me in terms of the kind of just to say a lot of those
3: government TDs and senators were at the peace building conference um, on Thursday. You know, so they were there for that. And I mean, RTE came and they filmed a segment with me and they cut out every single piece that I said about the peacebuilding conference and took one line about the rally. So I really am sick to death talking about the rally. I don't want to talk about the rally. I want to focus on women peace builders and what they're doing to make this
4: place better.
0: Dara, you wanted to come in to make a point. Sorry.
4: Yeah, I'll just make it very quick. Like, as uh, Aoife said, it's not about the men, so I'll be extremely quick. But just like on the point that, like Vicky said, because I was even thinking like, and sorry, I know uh, you said, Emma, you don't want to talk more about this. uh, So I'll make it extremely quick. But I was just reading true statistics and something that I think Fine and sorry to make it party political, but in 2015, they signed an agreement saying we need this amount, I think it was 472 women's refuges. And I know that's one particular point about like violence against women. It's not all encompassing, but we only have have 30 percent of that you know and we're in the budget you know there's 30 million euro for women's refuges there's 88 million for uh greyhound racing you know so you have these government ministers who say you know we want a platform but if they were going up there to speak would they be criticizing the government about the lack of funding for women's refuges or for the lack of um, action on violence against women so like I 100% agree, Vicky. You know, what is there to complain about? It's a protest against government policy that's failing women. Um, th- that's my piece. But
1: And like, I think related to that, and this was something I wanted, you know, again, to mention with Emma, like you're highlighting that brilliant work that you were doing this week. We also are having news stories this week about you know, um, medication for women suffering severely during pregnancy, you know, the cost of that. Stories today about Irish women having to go to Northern Ireland to access HRT, you know, really basic services for women where you're just left kind of thinking, if men needed this medication, you know, it would never um, get to this. And those really basic fundamentals not being um, catered for in that way.
0: No, um, I I just like, I mean, again, I think we can move on. And actually, Emma, I would like you to, if you wouldn't mind, give us a little bit of an insight into the week that you had because i know even like you this is the, the president spoke you know you you were you were it, and, and as you said it, it didn't get the coverage that it, that it deserved and um i mean i i i was speaking you know that we, we we continue to try and cover events across the island of Ireland on on this platform but but i did i did notice that again reading your timeline you were pretty pissed off is is is, is the polite way of framing it
3: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I don't normally, I'm not normally as outspoken. I think maybe I was a little more outspoken over this weekend than usual. But it's because, um, you know, a big theme on this day was how women working for peace is undervalued and underrepresented. You know, instead, um, we live here, especially in Northern Ireland, but across the whole island, really under sort of a, a constant Perpetual cycle of negative news stories. It's, and it keeps this narrative going, especially about the North, that this is a place at odds with itself, that, the, you know, it's all about division. It's all about segregation. When in reality, on the ground in communities, there are tons of people working extremely hard for peace building and reconciliation. And a real key part of that is the women on the ground that are doing that work. And so, of course, whenever all these women descended together, a hundred women in a room um, from across the island, that was not considered to be relevant um, because it showed that there is this cross-community, cross-border work happening and that it's not all doom and gloom. Whereas, you know, some men that gather for a protest and shout on top of of stages about their identity, that dominates the headlines. Um, And so I think that sort of really, for me, was, was really disappointing in terms of the coverage. And it just astounds me that this was not deemed relevant um, this week, and I was very frustrated, I suppose, for the women who were there, who gave their time, who had a, a list, the length of their arms of ways to make this place better. And yet those things, uh, weren't put out into, into wider society or shared in a way for people to really gain from them. So, right. yep, you'll probably see a lot on my timeline about reposting the videos from the day. It was live streamed so people can watch it back. Um, and I just think that, you know, it points to a wider systemic issue in terms of how the media represents women and how the media represents Northern Ireland and how the media represents peace and reconciliation in this place.
0: It was so funny because I know I shouldn't even reference it, but it was put, you know, in my two minute clip of fame that I had or whatever it was, it was put across the thing about what happened with them. You know, the, the North was othered within that conversation a lot. Therefore, the people who, who whether you're nationalist or loyalist or or no, no, none of the above, you were othered as well. And I think even I, I think I got pretty much shut down when I tried to make a point at the end about the Good Friday Agreement and, and who the actual signatories are to it. You know, so it I spoke to um, Rosie Bell yesterday from the PUP uh, and she she was saying, you know, like the work that, that she was talking about as, as a loyalist feminist perspective and those conversations are happening but we don't cover them in the media and we in in much of the media and we don't give it the credit that it deserves um I do want to move us on, if that's okay. And Daryl, I'm going to come to you because I I thought it was interesting. Now, as as uh, as as yet again, I, I come to you and say, here's the token young fellow we have. Um, but but we apparently there was a big debate in the doll this week, and they said, no, no, it's not that we don't need these cuckoo funds. We actually need more of them. You must have been sitting there saying, this is great news for for someone who's uh who's you know trying to 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 make their way and a little bit of a, I hate to use the term property ladder, but at least maybe have, you know, adequate housing,
4: Dara. Yeah, no, it's like beyond strange. And I thought that, I don't know if you remember, like maybe it was a couple months ago when there was this article, maybe it was in The Independent or something about how we shouldn't use the word vulture funds because it's offensive. And there has been this narrative, but I think it's the worst I've ever seen. That you know, in fact, these uh, vulture funds that are buying up properties, there's an estate near me in Shackleton and Lucan where they bought up 220 houses before they were even built, you know. So uh, regular people didn't even get a chance uh, to get in there. But yeah, I'm looking at... Uh, Well, my parents are driving me insane, so I'm looking at moving out. But when you look at rents, when you look at the cost of actually, you know, I can't imagine myself even having uh, not just the down payment for a mortgage, but like the income to be able to buy it uh, in the first place. Like you need something like three and a half times. So to sit there and you're constantly listening to because it's really the housing crisis is kind of an ideological crisis where uh, those in power you know they don't want to they don't want to get rid of the vulture funds they're absolutely happy with it they don't want to build on public land they don't want to build public housing because when you think of ireland uh, you know 50 60 70 years ago we were able to build public housing we were a lot poorer than we are now but uh, we had a lot less resources now we're one of the richest countries on earth and we have loads of public land there's no um there's no shortage of it but there's no ideological will to actually go and to build those houses or to say Vulture funds. Maybe it's not a great idea that American uh, investment funds are using Irish property and our misery through the housing crisis as a means to create profit. Sorry, I don't know if I came through with an actual point there. It's just no, so no, 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 no. But you,
0: no, I get it. But because, because, like, you know, you're, 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 um, yours. What's called the locked out generation, if you don't mind me using that phrase, and and that's where and that's where you know these conversations have to happen. But you make an interesting point about there not being a shortage. The figures I have in my hand here show that 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 within Dublin City, um, and that's under state control. So local authorities, state-owned, whether it's NAMA or it's uh, under state state ownership, zoned land, 182 hectares uh, at the uh, at the density levels of say something like O'Devany Gardens. About 36 to 38 and a half thousand units that the state could provide. So you have to say, no, it is, it is, uh, it is policy. The housing crisis is policy at this stage. It's been policy for years, but we've, you know, I think people are just kind of waking up to the, to the fact that they don't want to fix it because they're actually saying, no, we need more of vulture funds and cuckoo yeah. funds rather than less. Um, and we want, and we say there's a shortage of money to build them again, untrue. We're not playing within the, uh, the fiscal compact that we were told. Um, Vicky and Emma, you'll rec- recall this when we, when we all had the, the global financial crisis. The big thing was you can't stray outside the the EU's rules on 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 debt to debt to service GDP ratio, and yet now we actually have scope to do that. We could borrow at one percent, one point zero eight nine, and build as much as we want. But we won't do that. We'd rather pay the vulture funds a yield of four percent. So it's actually costing us more money. And I'm sorry to get all nerdy on it. But yeah, no, no.
4: That's fair because like there's so many avenues. You know, we could uh, as you said, we could borrow money and it's very cheap to borrow money at the moment. We could do that to build housing even if the vulture funds paid any tax, you know, that, that could be used to play. I'm not like, I'm, I'm for getting rid of the vulture funds altogether, but even, you know, if you were in the center and you said, okay, let's ta- tax these funds, there's some money. Then a lot of the money that's pumped into housing is into the hat payment. And you were talking about this, um, in your, uh, in your moment of fame. In my uh, rant? Yeah. <laughs> Which like we are pumping money into the housing sector, but it's only if it's to subsidize, um, landlords and vulture funds there's also um you know this is my pbp position if you had a two percent wealth tax on the top five percent of households excluding a family home it would create uh four and a half billion euro and like there is the argument that that people make that okay these people are going to leave but even if half of them left and it was two and a half billion euro that's a lot of money to build a lot of houses but there is a kind of As you said, like, or maybe it was me who said it, I can't remember, an ideological, yeah, it was me, sorry. Uh, There is an ideological kind of uh, block there where we're not willing to. And because, you know, if we did build a lot of houses, if we did build houses on this public land, house prices would drop and these investment funds would lose a lot of money uh, on speculation. Uh, As the rents drop, they would lose money on that. And uh, the government isn't willing to do that. It would make a lot of very powerful people very angry.
0: I mean, most of these it's 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 a sad fact that some of these funds are actually have are larger than most of our our economy, our real economy, not our GDP inflated foreign direct investment economy. and um, i would I would like to go and get a quick um s- chat, which, if you don't mind, on where the actual like because I've seen so many people that I know out actually campaigning for the general election, the storm of the election that's coming. um has there been? Much going on in terms of uh, the, the like it's just it's just it's going to happen now, and we're we're waiting on the date to be struck. Or is there, or is there any any hope that that they're going to actually maybe get things going because everything is bloody caught up, and there's a lot of bills that aren't going to get done that need to be done if this if this all grinds to a halt, which it looks like it already has. If I'm honest,
3: yeah, I mean there will be a lot of bills that just won't make it, you know, and that's really not not necessarily down to the fact the executive is dying right now, but even more so down to the fact that there was three years where we had no um, assembly or executives. So they really have been rushing through a lot of bills and they've been delayed. And now here we are. I mean, it's going to be dissolved on March 28th, um, which is when it was always going to be dissolved in terms of the assembly. And the election will be on May 5th, um, as was always the date as well. So the um, I suppose the moves from the DUP hasn't brought forward the election any sooner than it was going to be. But certainly, you know, we are gearing up for what is going to be a very contentious election. There is a lot of moving parts in terms of what happens with the um, negotiations that are taking place between the EU and the UK around the Northern Ireland Protocol um, we see that the DUP is, is very much going to run on a, on a ticket of, you know, vote us in to keep them ones out and also, uh, to remove the Irish Sea border, um, both of which don't actually provide any sort of substance, um, or benefit to the communities that they're trying to or claiming to represent. So, and then we see a divide here as well. I don't know if anyone saw it, but, um, there was a protest on Friday. Um, and of course, you know, the TUV was speaking, and the DUP was speaking and, um, People in the crowd sort of booing the DUP um, MP Sammy Wilson when he came on stage, which really shows, I suppose, a lot of disunity and disconnect within loyalist communities in terms of their perception of the DUP and their, you know, leaning more towards the TUV. So it's going to be a really um, unpredictable election because we have this divide within unionism itself. Then we also have, I suppose, the cohort of people coming up, um, the younger generations coming up who'll be voting for the first time. Where are they going to fall? And we have about 12 seats where there's really only a thousand votes between them. So there's quite a lot of marginal seats to play for. And we could be coming back after May with a very different assembly than we have right now
0: um just even on that like you the the idea of the protocol having to go on the sea border um the latest statistics out of dublin show that um it's benefited the economy north south much more than they than they took a hit going uh east west um and it's it's really beneficial there is obviously the the idea of the how it it what it means for the union. And, you know, and how that's been broke up. And I would say, go listen to Rosie's, Rosie's um, opinion on that, because she talks about it from what it means for the the, the, the what they thought about the act of union. But when they were marching, the point has to be, Emma, that they're marching, I think, against Westminster, not against the rest, because they're the people who've essentially said, we're not really interested. This is, this is, you're, you're the sacrificial lamb. That's the, yeah, that's, well, I mean,
3: that's not necessarily news, you know, like that's happened I, I, many, many times. Oh, I know, but historically. But you're right. You know, that's where it has come from. It's been a Westminster decision. They voted for the protocol. It was different to Theresa May's plan, uh, which I suppose would have been better in terms of uh, unionist concerns around there being this divide between how Northern Ireland is treated to the rest of the UK. But you'll have heard me speak before about the fact that like Northern Ireland already is different from the rest of the UK in tons and tons of ways. And, you know, that stuff around the act of the union you know, there's parts of the Act of the Union that have been repealed in different acts of Parliament, not just to do with the Northern Ireland Protocol, um, because that's how the law works. You know, it does get changed, it does get amended, it's fluid, it's not set in stone. So I think there's really, at the core of all this, a ton of misinformation and disinformation that has created a lot of anxiety and concerns within unionist and loyalist communities as as to what the protocol actually does for them. Instead of putting forward a positive case for the fact that it can be extremely beneficial in terms of the economy. And the reality is these communities have been left behind. The working class communities. They don't have the resources and investment that they need. And the protocol actually is an opportunity to put investment into these communities if only we had the political leadership to put forward that case.
0: And um, Dara, I am going to come to you. you, you you've mentioned your your PBP uh, affiliations. Um, what a, and this is where you're going to you're going to be upset with me now, because, you know, uh, we the last time we met, you were you were organizing the Black Lives Matter rally in DCU. Um, we are looking at a situation whereby there is a lot of people talking about the cost of living. There's a lot of people talking about um, housing and, and, and the various crises. Do you think, I, I know I was kind of pushing at it this week, saying, um, stealing Emmett Kirwan's line about a life delayed. Is there an appetite there? Do you feel for feet on the street again for the first time in, in since since COVID that we get involved and actually um, protest properly and maybe uh, take on this, this cost of living, which the crisis that has emerged in the last two weeks that other people have been living for years?
4: Yeah, I would just say, and just... Finishing on Emma's point because the cost of living crisis exists in the north as well. We share in Ireland. Like I was in, um, I was in Derry for the lo- launch of Sean Harkin's election campaign. He's running uh, in Foyle, uh, in kind of Derry constituency, and he was talking about the the rise in fuel costs there, the rise in electricity. So it is like an all Ireland issue, and I do think the housing. Uh, there's a lot of acronyms I don't remember the full names for, but there are a number of housing groups that are organising protests. There's going to be some this February and some following that and subsequently. So I think it is a thing of now, like, I know COVID is still going on, you know, people should still be careful. But I think the general public is kind of at this stage now where uh, I think people would be happy having protests and getting out. And it's sort of more of a question of how do we build that? Because, you know, um, This housing issue has been going on for a very long time. You know, it's not just in the last couple of months that it's gotten bad and there haven't been a lot of major um, actions against it like we saw for water charges. But I think it is a thing of people who are activists, that not just if you're in a party, but to get into contact with your trade unions if you're in one, to talk to other community groups. Because when it comes to the cost of living crisis and the housing crisis in general, it's not... Uh, like you were talking about, the North, it doesn't cut down like Protestant and uh, Catholic lines, it doesn't cut down Unionist and Nationalist lines, these are things that affect everybody, so... I think uh, going forward, absolutely, we need to, like we've been trying to build in Clendalkin for, we have, oh Christ, Gino is going to kill me, I forgot the name, I should have plugged the event, we are having a protest locally for that day of housing action, I'll share it, um, I'll share it on Twitter when I find the date, but it is a thing of, this is something that we have to build, I think people are fed up, but we have kind of all of us. Anybody who's an activist, you have kind of a responsibility to try and channel that energy into something uh, like the water charges, as uh, something that's um, that really kind of says to the government: you're not going to get away with this. Yeah, feet um, on the street. Yeah.
0: yeah, no, I agree, and and I know, and Emma, we've had that conversation before about the fact that one of the main problems, again, across the, sh- the island, is actually social inequality, lack of social mobility, uh, access to housing, access to health care you know we want to talk about you know what it looks like and yet we we're we're seeing you know issues in the hsc again where where there's, there's problems and issues about you know the the money and i know you have uh, you have a minister and, and a senior civil servants fighting in a pub in full view of everybody like it's it's gotten farcical um i i do i want i'm going to this is just if you can give me 90 seconds folks we spent the morning uh, talking to people in Kiev along the demarcation line and in Moscow. Um, and I don't know how you how to actually I don't I still don't know what the truth is because the I've been sent PDF files about disinformation, about false flag operations on all sides. And the only thing I could say to people who are looking at what's happening currently in, in Ukraine is to try and be skeptical of, of, of all sides at this stage, but there does very much seem to be some sort of proxy war carried out where some of the actors are are not are essentially working on behalf of other other state agencies uh, where they can have some sort of deniability and it does seem like some of the stuff that was sent i'd, I'd like to cover the more detail i got a lot of crap for uh, talking to, to to people across the spectrum on it in the last week nothing i've got i got so many messages given out because everybody thinks they're an expert but i can tell you folks you're not if, if you want to talk to the people on the ground the the actual People who are standing in the demarcation zone, they'll tell you uh, what's what's happening. But yeah, some of the some of the stuff that's happened in the last forty eight hours um, is is a bit is a bit worrying. And and uh, and I'd like to come back to it, but I just I I just don't know if I can make head nor tail of it. I, I I don't trust the information I'm being given, um, and that that'll show you that it just feels like propaganda from every from from all sides at this stage. Um, that's where we leave it for this week, folks. There was obviously more discussion um, and then a little bit of more discussion on with the uh, guests and with the patrons after the uh, even after the recording stopped. So, um, yeah, we had we, a good chat, uh, talked a little bit about the Shannon, talked a, bit, a little bit about how anti-democratic that is and some of the candidates and some of the other issues that are going on. We we also got into a little bit more um uh, on Ni and Dara talked a little bit about cost of living for students, particularly, and the prism of of uh, mixed learning. Uh, if you want to attend these, it's really simple. It's patreon.com forward slash tortoise And you actually get all of the podcasts in one place, one consolidated feed. And you don't get me interrupting them with these ridiculous things because I hate doing these reads. Unfortunately, likes and retweets and all the rest of it don't pay the bills. If you don't have the, the couple of quid a month to throw to us, uh, please let people know. It just as the only, only word of mouth, as I said, no ads, no sponsors, really limited budget. Uh, thanks for listening. Back very soon uh, with, with much, much more. Take care. Bye-bye.